Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to another episode of the Insider Outsider podcast. This episode, we have Adam Motenko, who has an organization called Coalescent Leadership. And um, Adam, you're also an associate at Essential Partners, and um, you've been a board member there as well. So welcome, Adam. Thank you, Michael. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I think the work that you are doing, focusing on equity and inclusion with white men, is really important work in the equity and inclusion space. So I'm, I'm excited to, to chat with you here. Thanks. Well, and you're the organization Essential Partners. I've been having my eye on um, all of you as an organization based in the Boston area. And before you were Essential Partners, you were Public Conversations Project. And to me, you're like coming up with some of the most innovative approaches to dialogue around tough issues. And um, so, yeah, why don't you describe a little bit of your background and both inside EP and outside of it, too, and your journey? How did you get into this work about facilitating conflict? Yeah, I, I think I've always been really interested. I, I designed a, my major in undergrad, which included conflict resolution. And then I got into the field. I, I started in my my first job was at the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School um, as a more administrative role, doing some research. And I, and I got heavily into negotiation and mediation. I, I definitely consider myself a conflict resolution nerd. And um when I actually, when I was at Harvard Law School, I, I that's when I first came across what was then Public Conversations Project. They would come in and do this interpersonal skills exercise with students for the negotiation workshop, which was one of the may have been the most popular course at at um, Harvard Law School. And this interpersonal skills exercise, where associates from Essential Partners would um, ask these very deep thought-provoking questions of students about things that really mattered to them. Mm. And it would have students really um, solving problems for themselves really quickly, problems, interpersonal problems that they'd <laughs> had for a long time, just in, in the way that the questions invited them to reflect. It had students crying. It was always the their favorite part of the course. And in seeing that, I remembered kind of making a mental note going, that organization is 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 doing really interesting work and I want to be involved with them. And it was, I don't know, 10 years later that I finally joined um, first as a board member. Now I'm an associate with them. Um, and the work that I do is all around leadership development and I would say conflict resolution. Sometimes it's in a corporate setting doing coaching or 360 reviews. Sometimes it's bringing, it's for nonprofits um, around aligning diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy with their strategic planning process. Um, sometimes it's teaching classes on, on leadership and negotiation, either for students in higher education or, um, or others. So it kind of spans a lot of different areas. Um, and the work with Essential Partners is, I, 
I say this when I'm in front of a, an essential partners client, but I, it's true outside of that context too. It's my favorite work because uh, my passion and purpose is, is in helping people better understand and improve their relationships, especially the ones that matter most to them. And I feel like essential partners work really focuses on improving relationships, uh, their model and the way they go about the work, the way they hold themselves. It all just, uh, to me, gets right at that relationship piece first. Mm -hmm. And I, I love what you're talking about, both with the Harvard program and, and what you just said, because um, as for listeners, you're going to be hearing some clues about what are some tips and tricks around really creating strong dialogue across difference. And one of them I heard you mention in the Harvard program is asking penetrating deep questions that are, aren't afraid of being personal, but humanize people and have them connect with each other, which I imagine also slows the process down. And um, yeah. 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 We, we have a model, we, it's called reflective structure dialogue that really tries to um, break down power dynamics gives in giving time to everybody to have an opportunity to share. We care a lot about stories. We want to know what people's experiences are. And mm -hmm. a lot of how we get to that is by crafting questions. When we're working with a client, we probably spend more time on, on analyzing and crafting our questions. How do we want to get at um, the issues that feel most important uh, on this, this topic that is divisive and when we have people from different sides of, of the issue in the room, how do we use language to frame it in a way that doesn't turn some people off, yep. uh, but it tries to invite everybody and that gets people to share what, what is true for them, what their experiences are, because we believe that creating connections on a human level is a lot of what breaks down some of the unhelpful patterns that that come up when there are issues that that get to um, being divisive or or when people are, are conflicting on things uh, I, I'm hesitating to use the word conflict because it doesn't have to necessarily be physical or violent or or that sort of a thing for you know especially in, in professional settings for it to cause problems that then have business impact yeah well and I, I imagine people you know in the DEI world um, in organizations, I mean, we. I think we feel like we're threading the needle around such tightness around strong polarized views, whether it's around conversations in race and how some people see Black Lives Matter, some people see, um, you know, even the Capitol riots on January sixth. Some people mm -hmm. wouldn't want it called that. Others, others feel like it's a you know insurrection. And then, so race, um, but also politics. Um, a lot of organizations are struggling with. How do we bridge people, particularly when they're seeing different media sources? So can you go into a little bit more examples of what does it look like to craft powerful questions on different kinds of topics and just give people a taste? I also know you're, you share a lot of resources on your website. Yeah. Yeah. So let me first share about a little more mm -hmm. about our model yep. and then get to questions. And then I can share about uh, context that, that we apply. Perfect. So, yeah. Thanks. Um, we, we take this, the approach that, um, that when issues arise where people, where clients come to us, it's because there is this, um, a cycle of uh, communication patterns that is destructive where, uh, if you and I are in a, a disagreement on something, you say something, it triggers me, I get defensive, then I get vigilant and I try and protect myself, um, because I feel attacked. 
And then I say something that triggers you. You're not aware of the original trigger that I'm reacting to. But now we're in this cycle where we're really pushing each other's buttons and then reacting to each other from a defensiveness uh, place. And yep. when this happens um, on an individual level with, <laughs> with you and I in that example, we could probably talk it through and, and come to a resolution if we're good, uh, effective communicators. Mm -hmm. And we have a certain level of trust and understanding or prior relationship. When we are in groups, um, and, and the, the current political context is a great example of this, if I get with people that are like-minded, that reinforce what I believe, my subjective view of what happened, of your motivations, mm -hmm. uh, we create these echo chambers, and then we're fighting in these groups. And, and what we know about people in groups is we're more likely to act in ways that are not aligned with our values in a group than we are as an individual. There's the concept yeah. of social proof, seeing other people do things makes it feel acceptable. Yeah. And in our current political climate, we're getting information from vastly different sources. So there's really a, a huge gap uh, in uh, in the political divide right now. Uh, and I feel like we can you can really map that to the way we think about group polarization with this uh, destructive cycle. So. At Essential Partners, we try and break that down by getting people together from different sides of an issue and using our process, which really ensures that people are taking time to listen, to, to understand what matters to the other side, to reflect, just pausing, silence, and considering what they're, what they're saying. Because oftentimes when somebody else is speaking, we're thinking about what we're going to say in response and we're not fully, yeah. truly listening. Yeah. Then we give time to respond in a mm -hmm. way that is trying to share so that the other person understands us, not mm -hmm. to convince them of something, not to get them onto our side. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of inquiry. There's a time to ask questions. And, and these are questions of genuine curiosity, questions to really try and understand the other side or to invite them to share more about what matters to them. It's uh, so that we're creating the space, this container for, that's what we call dialogue. It's yeah. really, when we say dialogue, it's that process. And, yeah. and as was mentioned before, it breaks down power dynamics and, and gets people to, to share and, the, and really to remove people from, I'm in this camp and we believe such and such to, I see Michael said this thing that I can relate to. He talked about his kids. He talked about what matters to him. And those are the same things that matter to me. Mm -hmm. And out of that, uh, and, and we know this because we have strong monitoring and evaluation out of that in, comes increased trust an in increased uh, feeling that the uh, that other people understand me, an increased yep. belief that I understand other people. And then there's all sorts of possibility that exists about where we can move forward, what we can mm -hmm. create together because mm -hmm. we have stronger relationships as a result of that process. Yeah. And the questions are things like, when you consider uh, policing and the Black Lives Matter movement, what is at the heart of the matter for you? Mm -hmm. Or when you consider such and such an issue, where do you feel pulled in different directions? Where do you feel unsure or uncertain? Because mm -hmm. even if we're even in our strongest convictions, there are questions that we hold about whether parts of what we believe are real or, or mm -hmm. um, whether other people might feel differently than we do. And so we try and bring that to light. And then and that so we, we, we try and share stories, share people's experiences um, try and find connections to that and then open it up for some question and answer to try and go deeper. And we have a number of different sessions uh, to try and, and, and <laughs> use patterns to, uh, of relating in this way 
to mm-hmm. also help strengthen those relationships. Yeah. Well, I, we when we formed our company, um, FDP Global White Men's Full Diversity Partners, yeah. um, it was right around the time when the book Difficult Conversations came out um, from the Harvard Project there. And so it was really helpful to build our allies lab mixed dialogues around that, you know, so normalizing that different stories, people have different stories, they're each valid. And I, I also had a uh, studied in my doctorate with Sarah Cobb, who was probably mm-hmm. one where I heard about the um, public conversations project. But I remember her saying uh, negative stories are very simple. Um, conflict stories that are stuck are basically very short narratives that are assuming negative intent, negative character, and appreciative mm-hmm. stories are much more complex. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're doing as I listen to this questions is you're creating openings for people to share complexity in their lives around real life experience. What's behind your political beliefs? What, what's the confusing part about it and all that. So it's complexifying narratives, which busts down the polarization. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that that kind of lineage, uh, mm-hmm. I know Doug Stone and Sheila Heen who wrote difficult conversations. Yeah. They worked a lot with Roger Fisher and, um, and the others that wrote getting to yes, which getting mm-hmm. to yes was a seminal negotiation book that really dealt with if you are, even if you're purely self-interested, how do you collaborate in a way that creates as, as they created win-win solutions? Um, so even if all I care about is myself, I can do better by working with the other side. And then the question that Difficult Conversations tried to answer is, what about when people are part of the issue, when we're not all reasonable actors? How do you deal with Mm -hmm. feelings? How do you deal with identity? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you have a conversation that isn't just sort of logical, uh, behavioral? Um, And I think think we do deal with a lot of that complexity in, in the essential partners process. Yeah, so the questions you gave um, Adam, around you know, around policing and Black Lives Matter, what's at the heart of the matter to you? It's a very strong inquiry of get right to what is in your heart around this. Not about a concept arguing. It's about what matters most to you around this. And then that's exciting to hear that. And I, I think you have that basic question about any topic: what's at the heart of your political beliefs? What's at the heart of your you know, if it's abortion versus choice? Oh, is that sort of your, one of your crux moves is to ask people what's at the heart of it for them. And I I mean, those came up as questions for me because I do think that they're common questions that we like to ask. Uh, Mm. The interesting thing for me as a conflict resolution nerd is that at essential partners, we don't focus on solutions. If you're doing a negotiation, part of like part of the seven elements for getting to yes is commitment. You need to figure out who's doing what, when, how, because we could have all these conversations. And if we're not actually um, identifying what the solution looks like and ensuring that we follow through with it, then the problem still uh, exists. And a lot of the complexity that I think Essential Partners deals with is, is <laughs> taking on sort of a a don't know mind, like to, to steal mm-hmm. a Buddhist term, the idea of a, of a beginner's mind that, that even if we're trying to construct really clear solutions, we still may be missing things. We still may be not seeing the whole picture that, that the issue is really in the interrelating and yeah. that complexity. And if mm-hmm. we take a really simplistic view and try and be as efficient as possible, we often will miss things that will still uh, come back to bite us later. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
and, and I don't, one of the struggles that I have is, is sometimes that, that it sometimes feels like, well, I think it would be helpful in this situation to have part of this process be really solution focused. And we're not, we're, we kind of circle mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. around the conversation yeah. around the dialogue yeah. uh, with a belief that if people are building trust and and increasing um, their capacity to see one another, that that then ter- will naturally turn into them creating ways yeah. to work better together. Yeah, we actually differentiate between having conversations for um, action or agreement versus just mm-hmm. conversations for understanding. Suspend the need to agree, and you know you can't fix what you don't understand. So don't try to jump to action. Yeah. Um, slow down, get an inquiry, more inquiry, less advocacy. And, um, yeah, those muscles of sitting in the messiness of it. Um, and then the, the, the vulnerability, encouraging vulnerability is a form of courage to make it, uh, real safer. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of overlap. We, we work in a lot of different contexts in, in, with civic and community organizations, higher education, secondary schools, workplaces, both corporate and nonprofit faith-based organizations and, and some international work. But but what you were just talking about is, is really interesting to me in the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion work, because I know I'm tired of having conversations about race within organizations if we're not talking about changing the structure of the organization. Uh-huh. Uh, I feel that way and I'm affiliated with a number of different organizations. I feel that way in, in those, I felt that way in other institutions I've worked at. Um, I'm currently having a part of uh, racial justice conversations for an organization that are really dialogue focused. They were just talking about what does this mean? And, and I'm, it's frustrating for me because I kind of feel like the mm-hmm. answers are here. I trust the leadership to apply them. And do we really need to have more conversations? And I know uh, for people of color, that's a really um, exhausting experience. And I recognize that that desire that I have for solutions in action uh, is antithetical to what we were just describing, that this dialogue process importantly provides space for of all of the complexity. And mm-hmm. I know that if we're not bringing everybody or a, a critical mass, enough people on, on board to create a tipping point that um, in terms of uh, race work or inclusion and access work, that it's not going to have the same staying power. And and I wrestle with that challenge. I'm not sure what the red solution is. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's a lot of, the, there's a question of, I mean, a, a lot of the executives who have you know, after George Floyd's deaths and the protests were like, we're ready to have conversations about race now where they were sort of delaying themselves before, not every system, but something. And then I remember sort of like, wow, I just never knew that sort of uh, um, understanding and getting connected to other people's lived experiences. And yet, um, you know, there's a couple of things that we worry about. One is, you know, we don't want to have, um, the folks of color, for instance, feel like they are in a role where they have to teach and it may re-traumatize them to talk yep. about old experiences or whatever. So we really lean on the unexamined aspect of light skin privilege or white whiteness and wh- what is the role for us to do that with each other, to do some initial learning so we're not putting others uh, having to carry the burden to educate us and prove that this stuff is real. 
um, all of that. Same thing with gender and other dynamics and that. So it's a navigational piece. And then, you know, a lot of people take a, you know, a white male who's worked hard his whole life, um, didn't necessarily come from an upper class, but struggle. He, he is more connected to his outsiderness at a class level than his insiderness at a white level. And so, you know, some of, you know, the way that we address class in some of our programs so they can feel seen for where they, that part of them is. It's like a lot of people want to probably feel heard for their outsider dynamics that they feel before they're willing to look at their insiderness. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. And, and I've seen, I mean, I, I'm thinking the burden piece that you mentioned, trying not to put, I think it was in your, your uh, Ted talk that you, your research uh, showed that yeah. most white men learn from people of color or women about diversity mm -hmm. and, and do we trust white men to lead the charge? I mean, I, I think we as white men need to be uh, doing a lot of this work. And there's pieces that we just, because we sit in a place of privilege, have a much mm -hmm. harder time understanding and, and mm -hmm. parts that we will never fully understand. Um, yeah. And what is the best way for a company or an organization to ensure that they are not um, perpetuating a problem? around race. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that different leaders come to this work for different reasons and they have, each organization is, is pretty unique uh, in terms of their mm -hmm. culture, in terms of hierarchy, who their leadership is. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen a lot of organizations decide they want to change and then they do around diversity. They bring in people of color or they bring in uh, other marginalized populations uh, and, uh, and then they don't have enough um, systems in place to support those people once they're there. And the yeah. experience is really negative. Um, so, mm -hmm. so access and inclusion is really important as well. Um, yeah. yeah, you can't just recruit. You got to look at the culture. And a lot of us, if we've never left our culture as white guys, aren't aware that it is a culture. We just think it's good humanness and mentor everybody to be like us and um look at that lens as who's qualified and we just perpetuate that system. So um, I was at, listening to a podcast yesterday by Resma Menekin, who wrote, you know, my grandmother's hands that uh, mm -hmm. seminal book on somatic approaches to racism. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, some cases you just need to get white people together to start doing their work with each other yep, and not put the burden on others. And that's a, that's part of what we've been doing with our white men's caucuses and some cases, white, all white leadership teams too with the gender mix, but um, yeah. And that, that, that's an important piece. Cause a lot of people look at the uh, workplace through the lens of sameness and difference, and they want to minimize difference and focus on sameness because they think that creates inclusion. And yeah. one of the things they got to do is step onto the other side of the paradox and val validate the differences in the lived experiences and be willing to particularly mine as a white male, how is my experience different than my women colleagues and my colleagues of color and others? And um, what is that? So to, to look at that and see how I'm not helping other people with their issues by understanding that I'm, I'm freeing up my own life in new ways. There's, I, I wonder also if there's sort of uh, I'm thinking about organizations like standing up for racial justice, which is focused mm -hmm. on, on white people or um, Essential Partners does, every year we do a, a large dialogue project 
with a community of 50 something faith-based organizations. It's on racial and religious bias. Mm -hmm. And there's these beautiful conversations that happen and people, all of the great things that I talk about that Essential Partners creates come out of that. And maybe because they're all from the same region and it's a pretty liberal region, uh, they don't have a lot of people in the conversations who think very differently than them. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, a lot of essential partners work will will get somebody from one side of an issue coming to us saying we want to have dialogue and our answer is great go get somebody from the other side yeah and we'll have you all bring people together mm-hmm. so even with um some of this work i, I mean i'm i'm a mad, like i see in a, in a lot of white focused uh, racial justice work that it's still people with like-minded views mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or people sort of in right. the same, in a, in a similar yeah. range of the sort of mm-hmm. waking up process to racism in America. Um, and I'm, I'm in a, a men's group and uh, I'm thinking about a member of, mm-hmm. of the group who is aware of, of race and racism, but also comes from a, a much more conservative place um, and is, almost needs a space to express views that would mm-hmm. probably be re- offensive to mm-hmm. a lot of people, the people that we're talking yeah. about, or potentially if you're listening to this podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so how do we create spaces for those people too? Because yeah. that may be part of that person's process. Yeah. We're talking about that with some of our clients is actually, um, you know, varied levels um, in the workforce, you know, being able to speak their felt experience and, one of the additional complexities is they're watching different media sources. So they're getting a partial view. And I think we have to call that out and name, you know, we're all seeing part part of the view of facts or or, our perspectives and all our views are incomplete, but that does open up the dialogue to hear, you know, perspectives, you know, but that's, that's hard for people of color to want to hear, you know, somebody that supported the capital insurrection and felt like the, you know, the election was stolen and all that. So it's like, how do you, how do you um, honor each side's reality while they have to be open to hearing other perspectives in a way that doesn't re-traumatize um, people who already experience oppression regularly? It's like, they're in light some of the complexities. So um, what do you, what would you say to um, some of the DEI leaders around how they might address the political divides in the workplace. I was, I was just wondering what your thoughts were about when you work with a client that is maybe yeah. a more conservative client, how do you handle that? The, the thoughts that I had around this topic is, is we have a lot of conversations at Essential Partners about what is this space for and what is it not for? And that is, you know, if, if you have somebody who, who, uh, supports the Capitol riot and believes the election was stolen and is angry about it and just wants to express that anger. Uh, it's probably not the right space, the essential mm-hmm. partners dialogue space, probably not the right place for that person in the same way. If you have a college student who wants to have a safe space in, in quotes, mm-hmm. um, where they know that they're not going to give it like where they want to be promised. They're not going to get triggered by something. Um, it's not the right space for them too. We don't promise safe space. Yep. We promise an engaged space. Mm-hmm. So if, if, and, and, and so, and, and the ground rules that we, we will, people agree to support that so that, um, yeah. 
we can have, you can have people with vastly different beliefs, but they have to be ready and willing to do all of the things that I described are embedded in the reflective structured dialogue process. They need to be ready to listen, to reflect, to share in it with an attempt to be understood, to ask questions with an attempt to understand. And if they just want to, uh, right. Get angry and, and get people to agree to them. It may not be the right space. Yeah. But if you're um, working with a client that has is bringing people together, that that may not be um, yeah. as available, or, or yeah. that may be need to be shifted a bit. Well, one of the things that I I think I hear in your perspectives of bringing people together across differences is to have somewhat of the same ratios of yeah. you know difference in a whether it's politics or whatever, and I see that in the braver angels um, yep. approach to and stuff. I don't know if you have thoughts about what happens when you don't have that in your organization slanted towards one side and um, there anything that you've implemented in that process or. Um, I, I think that is important. We definitely try and do that. Braver angels. There's a lot of dialogue organizations um, yeah. out there. I'm also on the leadership council for the convergence center for policy resolution. Um, a lot of them actually uh, spawned out of essential partners and, and our, mm -hmm. our model. Um, and, and we welcome as many different actors in this space, trying to, we're all trying to solve the same problem yeah. in, in a way. So, um, we do, it, it is important to have a critical mass of, of, um, perspectives. Um, mm -hmm. and I mean, we're not, we're not reaching out to people, making sure that we're not trying to cherry pick, uh, really, yeah. Uh, in terms of minutia, but when you don't have that, you get people who came from the majority side saying, well, I wish there were more people that, that felt differently than me. And mm -hmm. it almost feels like they didn't get what as much as they wanted out of the experience, or mm -hmm. you get the people um, who are a part of the minority feeling like a minority feeling like I wish there were other people here who, who could support where I'm yeah. coming from or understand where I'm coming from. And I think that that can also exacerbate the feeling of I'm kind of teaching these other people what it's like to be me. Right. To come from where I'm coming yeah. from in, yeah. in identity or perspective. One thing Sometimes we do. Sometimes that's the hardest thing. Uh -huh. Having true diversity. Uh, and I mean that in all of the different ways that, that it can mean within a dialogue or even within an organization, a dialogue organization. Uh, can be challenging. When I was on the board of Essential Partners and, and I chaired the nominating committee, I put together a whole uh, um, um, spreadsheet of different sort of diversity metrics that we were trying to achieve. Mm. And, and we would do a, a gaps analysis to identify what are we missing and try and bring new members yeah. on that fit those things. And that included socioeconomic status and, mm -hmm. and um, mm. sort of skills and abilities or uh, related to, to board needs and um, political affiliation. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was all, in addition to your traditional race, gender, identity, et cetera, stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's for some reason, I, I it was very difficult for us to find um, conservatives that were as excited about having these kinds of conversations um, mm -hmm. as it is to to find liberals who do that. And I'm not sure why that is. Uh huh. Yeah, and and, and I some of our clients, um, you know. And maybe in the tech world, they tend, tend to have more of a liberal base and defense contractors, maybe more of a conservative, all, mm -hmm. all these varies and changes. But we did some work on belonging study with Coqual um, organization. And, you know, when you are in the minority political um, party in an organization, which is context dependent, you feel mm -hmm. less belonging. Similarly, if you don't have kids 
Um, and the norm is to have kids. If you are introverted and the norm is extroverted, there's a lot of different intersectional dimensions that impact that. But um, so, yeah, when, when there is an, a, a lopsidedness to it, it's harder to access. We do a lot of work in fishbowls. So, um, you know, if we have a room of 24 people or even a, a WebEx or a Zoom, you know, we can take four or six people, invite them to have their cameras on and have a powerful dialogue. So that's one way is to get representatives from different perspectives when it's not in the full room, but it is enough to, you know, assuming you have enough to have some psychological safety, they're not the only couple people, but there's, you know, five or six from one perspective and a couple of them come in to share one of the, that's one of the things that we've been able to do is use that fishbowl structure. Yeah. And I, I wonder whether there needs to be just some level of acceptance of power dynamics that exist yeah. because our society is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so asking marginalized people to be part of a conversation like that or a dialogue yeah. with essential partners is asking them to do more work mm -hmm. that they shouldn't have to do. Right. Um, and and everybody has has free will to join or leave these circles. Um, mm -hmm. but I, that's something that I've thought a lot about and I, I don't have a clear answer on it. Um, I wish, yeah. I wish, and, and I think something that, that it sounds like your organization is attempting to, to resolve or, or ease in some ways by, by taking white men and saying, this is our responsibility. Let's do everything possibly we possibly can to, mm -hmm. to create change. Yeah. And part of our, part of our work is working with the insiders. Um, and so globally, we do a lot of work with men around mm -hmm. engaging men as gender equity champions. And then it varies around the world. Who are the insiders? Who are the outsiders? But certainly skin tone has a big impact on some of it. But yeah, there's plenty of work to do just within groups to uh, really explore and be curious and examine their perspectives. Um, and, you know, I think... Um, that whole under of all of our worldviews are incomplete. Um, and, um, and so be curious about what, can I hold myself accountable for really understanding another person's perspective such that I could basically tell them what I hear and they'd say, yeah, you got it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in, in the diversity space, uh, there's a lot of organizations that do training Mm -hmm. on sort of here's here's what equity looks like here's what inclusion looks like if you want to be an organization that provides access to everybody here's what you have to do and there's a certain world worldview set of beliefs that i think that that comes with that work and i think that work is really important essential partners i mean i don't think we consider ourselves diversity equity and inclusion uh consultants mm -hmm. we're dialogue consultants mm -hmm. um so I think that that distinction is important. And I think that there's a space for, for all of that in, in this equity work. Uh, yep. But I'm, I'm curious what you think about the impact of that very focused racial justice training versus dialogue for different organizations. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe when one of those tools makes more sense or for which type of organization it makes yeah. more sense. To me, it's about, you know, are we using an approach to avoid some of the hard stuff or the messy topics or the, you know, a lot of, um, you know, for instance, white women will connect to outsiderness. They feel as, as a woman, 
and gender, but not really own or see their race, their whiteness, mm-hmm. the insiderness. So an approach that colludes with them avoiding that isn't going to help address how they can grow and be more allies, challenging their white colleagues, including men, and not not sometimes there's a potential for white women to protect us um, or want to keep us comfortable, um, even though we need the learning because we don't understand what we're, our blind spots are. So um, the I like the the DNI approaches that zero in on privilege, insider, outsider dynamics, and we define privilege not necessarily by what you have, but what you don't have to deal with or navigate. Yeah, and that you know, how, if I'm going to partner with some of my black colleagues, it's helpful for me to know how my world is different, and I'm not navigating things they're navigating. And so, um, you know, I guess if a dialogue approach went too fast towards just focusing on sameness and ignored the difference in the room, yeah. the difference, like you said, of power dynamics or difference in uh, inclusion or difference in even safety, felt safety. You know, the women spend so much time having to navigate safety compared to many of us men. And it doesn't really hit us at a hard level unless we sometimes see that happening in our daughters or our spouses or something sometimes. So, um, I, but I think that your general approach when you that first question is what it's that what's at the heart of this for you? You go right after that. And uh, I think that's, you know, it's like amplifying difference actually is a move that creates commonality, even though it's a paradox. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. So um, I'm curious, Adam, what's this been like in your personal journey um, being a facilitator and being a creator of this, how have you grown personally and helping others facilitate conflict? How has that impacted you? Well, that's that's interesting. I mean, if we're going to psychoanalyze me, we, you and I, before we jumped on the podcast, talked about how we're both twins. I think I come to conflict resolution work because of my experience as a twin, <laughs> my experience of deep connection and uh-huh. disconnection. So I, I like really feel the value of this. So uh, I really try and apply a lot of the the theory and the models that I've learned throughout my educational and, and work career in my personal life. And uh, mm. personal relationships are always the most difficult place to apply this mm-hmm. stuff. The, mm-hmm. the most important relationships are always the toughest. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's fascinating. And and I, I've talked to other people that. Uh, and I'm thinking about a colleague who who served on a panel who was about uh, a, a panel of mediators who was basically saying his significant other kept saying, stop mediating me. Uh, I yeah, think yeah. I, I, I like to apply. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a there's a, a process. I'm a process person. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just naturally or as a result of this work. So when I'm in the middle of a, a disagreement, I'm thinking about what matters to me and what do I want to be saying mm-hmm. that may not actually be helpful for the situation. And also, what are they saying? And then which model? <laughs> there's a there was an old mediation um, article written by by Frank Sander. Uh, talking about you, you fit the form to the fuss, like whatever the problem is, there might be a, a different s- solution that makes mm-hmm. the most sense. So which model should we be applying here? And, right. uh, I haven't had enough partners who are, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, willing to, or interested in, in right. uh, getting nerdy in the same way. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I know for me, um, I, I come, Enneagram nine, more peacemaker sort of connect, you know, facil- 
openness, not needing to, um, it's, it's actually been my challenge to grow my voice and assert my power and mm-hmm. assert, you know, anger. And that's not your typical male challenge, but it's like, we all have to look at what's, what does bring us wholeness and what parts of myself have I used and survived with that have helped me. I think my listening skills and facilitation skills have been a survival tactic for me, you know, many mm-hmm. ways. And I use them professionally, but then there's this other challenge of growing my fire and um, inferno and the energy to, to set boundaries and uh, manage a culture um, so that it's not overly white male for people who work in our company, women and folks of color. So that's an ongoing personal process for me. That I, I identify with that as well. Uh, assertiveness is a growth area for me too. And, and the challenge that I see is in applying it. How do I apply that effectively in a way that is very well received and, yeah. uh, and still truly assertive for me? Mm. So if, if somebody wants to um, find some of the resources um, in your organization, how would they go about that? If they wanted to like use some of your tools to practice piloting a conversation across politics in their one of their teams. Yep. So all of our resources can be found at whatisessential.org for essential partners. And you can click on find resources or you can go to whatisessential.org backslash resources. And there's a lot on there. There's a, a free dialogue guide, dialogue guide to race in America. Uh, we put something out uh, for red, blue divide every Thanksgiving yeah. with the idea of that when you get to that table, you may be having some of those conversations. Uh, there's a post-election um, guide that came out. We did a lot of work pre-election also trying to kind of prepare people to have conversations no matter what the outcome is. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of really good stuff on there. Um, that, that people can take and use in their personal or professional life. And, uh, if you want to engage with us more, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to, to help you think through a problem that you have or, uh, be a support to, to you or to your organization. Yeah. Great. So uh, I know I've found the resources really helpful, just brainstorming questions, thinking about them, you know, short articles, handouts, question guides for different topics and things like that. So what a rich treasure that your um, organization you're connected with gives. And is there anything else you want to share about other organizations you're part of or coalition, coalescent leadership or anything else outside of your Um, EP? Yeah. I mean, at at coalescent leadership, we do a lot of of leadership development, coaching, training. um, And uh, so happy to to chat with anybody interested uh, in me for, for that. and uh, I just hope that that this dialogue work spreads more because I think it's critically important. And and I mm-hmm. I know that from a conflict resolution perspective, once people get embedded into a disagreement that is strong enough, the tendency is to want to be right, and we choose solutions to our problems that will hopefully tell us uh, that we won. And that's going to be more yeah. expensive. It's going to be more time consuming. It's going to be much yeah. harder emotionally. And um, I think a much more effective and efficient approach is to use processes that help people come together and work collaboratively. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm all about. And and let's make that yeah. happen more, especially in, in around issues of diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Well, and from our perspective um, at WMFDP, we see some of the overuse of what I call white male culture the focus on action, the focus on doing, the the, mm-hmm. the less value of being relationships are minimally built to get tasks done as opposed to 
you know, coming from a stronger relational orientation, it's all about status and rank more than connection and often taught to disconnect from heart or emotions because it somehow is seen as canceling out rationality. And so some of it is um, using the strengths of white male culture, that rugged individualist, let's go be tenacious about having a conversation, but not overusing the qualities that get in the way of what you're talking about or more inquiry, more relational presence, more humbleness, more being curious about the other perspective. And um, gosh, the, the if we're going to apply those skills in the workplace, you know, as you were saying, I was saying, I, they're also the most successful skills that will help our personal relationships work, mm-hmm. which is a bonus for all this. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you for, for having me on and shining a little spotlight on us. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate your uh, willingness to take the time out. So Adam um, Motenko from uh, Essential Partners and Coalescent Leadership. Thanks a lot for joining. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.